Hello and welcome to Max Politics. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette, a publication of Citizens Union Foundation. Thanks very much for tuning in here for this episode of the show. We are speaking here on Wednesday, July 27th, 2022, and we are officially now under four weeks until New York's second primary day of the summer, <laughs> which is August 23rd. Uh, this is for elections for the New York State Senate and U.S. House of Representatives after a chaotic redistricting process that was mandated, of course, after the 2020 census, a number of decisions from New York officials, the courts, selected officials, appointed officials, and others, I won't go into all the details now, led us to these two primary days this year with the previous one for statewide and state assembly seats in June. And now we have this one for the state Senate and U.S. House in August, all leading us, of course, to the general election in the fall. A great deal of attention has been on two Democratic House primaries in New York City, the crowded and competitive race in the new 10th congressional district, where a diverse field of candidates is running for an open seat that will serve much of lower Manhattan and a stretch of Brooklyn. I've been interviewing the leading candidates in that 10th congressional district primary here on the show. You can find all those in the podcast feed or the Gotham Gazette website. Uh, still working on getting all the, the leading candidates there, but we've spoken with a bunch so far. Then there's the new 12th congressional district, which covers much of both the east side and the west side of Manhattan. And there is an intense Democratic primary there, including my guest today, Suraj Patel, as well as two sitting members of Congress, Representatives Carolyn Maloney and Jerry Nadler. They are both running here in the 12th district after the new map put both of their political bases and homes in this new 12th district. Nadler, of course, represents the current 10th district, which has changed quite a bit. Meanwhile, Suraj Patel is trying to make his case that it's time for voters to retire both Maloney and Nadler, and he'll explain that case here with us today. Ashmi Sheet, a first-time candidate who has worked in bank regulation and calls herself a climate activist, is also in the running in this district. My guest today, Suraj Patel, is an attorney, a Democratic campaign operative who worked on both Obama presidential campaigns and then in the administration for a stretch. He calls himself an Obama Democrat. He also co-founded a political training and advocacy group called The Arena. He's worked as an attorney and in business. He's been lecturing on business ethics at NYU, and he is here running this year in the 12th Congressional District. He ran against Representative Maloney in the outgoing 12th Congressional District in both 2018 and 2020, losing by a fairly wide margin the first time and then a very narrow margin the second time two years ago. This new 12th Congressional District of New York is fully in Manhattan, along with Roosevelt Island, and stretches on the west side from Chelsea up through the Upper West Side. On the east side, it starts down in Stuyvesant Town and goes up through the Upper East Side. It includes all of Midtown, Hudson Yard, Central Park in full. I think you get the picture, but to see it in other districts, you can, of course, visit the great redistricting and you New York website from our friends at the CUNY mapping service led by Stephen Romaluski. All right, let's get to it. Suraj Patel, thank you for being here. How are you? I'm doing great, um, Ben. Thanks for having me today. It's a hot, wonderful New York summer day, and it's good to be here inside. Right. Recording. We're we're, <laughs> we're under a month from primary day, um, so you're meeting lots of voters. You're traveling all over this district. Uh, we'll get into lots of details, but give us your elevator pitch. What's your what's your two minute 
uh, introduction to voters as to why you're running here and and why they should uh, at least take a, a very close look at your campaign when when you're meeting people out and about. What's the two minute elevator pitch? Go ahead. Well, I've talked to thousands of people on the streets. I average eight to nine miles a day walking around, talking to people, knocking doors. And I can tell you one thing, that people are ready for change. That The status quo has failed New York and it's failed Democrats and it's failed in Washington. After a combined 60 years of incumbency, um, 1990s Democrats like Carolyn Maloney and Jerry Nadler have lost every major battle to Mitch McConnell and the Republicans, whether it's on abortion, gun rights, or gun control rights, um, and securing our democracy or climate change. Both of my opponents, um, you know, have been more effective in, in maintaining their power you know, one of the reasons we're in this race in the first place because they gerrymandered their own districts uh, in violation of the New York state constitution um, and got caught. Um, but look, we've defeated Trump and Trumpism is on the rise. And what we need is a new generation of Democrats, new messengers with a new case for New York values, uh, with the energy um, and the ideas to, to fight back and to win back some of these rights. If it takes a quarter of the time to win back the rights we've lost over the last few months, um, that uh, you know that that it um, took to lose them 50 years. Then I'm the only one in this race with with the ideas, energy, and, and wherewithal to do that race uh, and uh, wage that fight. And that's why I'm doing this. Um, the city's at a turning point itself as well. Uh, this morning we just saw a report that says that population change in Manhattan uh, was dropped by 6.6 percent over the last two years through COVID. But you know what the population change, Ben, uh, was for people under the age of five? Nine and a half percent. Mm-hmm. Cities facing a livability crisis. You shouldn't have to choose between living in the city you love and raising your family. I'm in that age cohort, by the way. My brother has a 14-month-old toddler. We live in the same apartment, um, and we're always discussing what what's going to happen when when you know I have a kid soon and uh, and others. And um, you know we have five thousand dollars a month uh, of median rent costs in my district now as of last month. And all of this happened under the watch of Carol Maloney and Jerry Nadler and the politics of. No, I know those are local issues, but I think we have to tie all of it together uh, and say who who is positioned to bring Democrats in New York back. Mm-hmm. When when you call them 1990s Democrats, obviously you're talking about sort of when when they um, entered Congress. But what does it what does it mean to be a 1990s Democrat? And when you say they're losing all these battles to to Mitch McConnell, obviously your opponents are in the House. Uh, they're not in the Senate. Um, how, how are they losing to to Mitch McConnell, especially, you know, now when Democrats control all of uh, federal government? Well, first off, that's uh, in and of itself a ringing indictment. We control all three um, of the legislative and executive branch of, of government here. And um, the failure in those 30 years to codify Roe, to codify Griswold, to hold a single hearing on doing one of those two things, to codify, um, you know, uh, Obergefell or Loving, frankly, which would affect me personally. All of these things are an indictment of the priorities or misplaced priorities. But when I say 1990s Democrats, I'm talking about um, a different era. In 1994, when the uh, assault weapons ban passed. It passed with less than 60 votes because it was not filibustered. It passed with bipartisan support. And it seems like our our uh, incumbents are playing with that type of mindset and playbook and rule book, whereas Mitch McConnell and the Trumpists uh, across the country, these extremists have just taken the chessboard and thrown it across the room and said, it's our rules now. And, you know, when I say we need to make a new argument for New York values, it means understanding the mediums by which we can 
change the conversation um, and, and, and message a new economic argument for uh, Democrats and for the middle class and for this country. And it's not standing up in front of a podium um, with Carolyn Maloney and Jerry Nadler and an easel, you know, talking about on C-SPAN um, something that's irrelevant to people's lives. Like my campaign and I have sprung into action so many times just in the last three months um, to make change. And I'll tell you a few examples. Um, when my 14 month, when my uh, nephew uh, and I tried to go get baby formula and a few months ago, Christides associated, everybody was out. We ended up getting it uh, at Costco in the Upper East, well, just past the Upper East Side. And I decided to take up my pen. I was the first candidate in the country to call on President Biden to invoke the DPA um, to produce more baby formula in America. I published that op-ed in the New York Times. And two days later, he did. Defense Production Act. Mm-hmm. Sorry, the Defense Production mm-hmm. Act. And two days later, um, he did invoke the Defense Production Act to produce more baby formula. And um, in the month of June, 60% more baby formula was produced in America thanks to that. And there's still more work to be done. I mean, we still have a 20% tariff on baby formula from abroad. You know where most of it comes from? The Netherlands. So if we're thinking that, you know, our fear is that we're going to have a bunch of tall, happy babies, then let's go for it, you know? But but the question is, you know, at this point, Carolyn Maloney is still trying to decide whether there's a baby formula crisis. She's deciding to hold a hearing next month on it um, rather than taking action. And I think people just really want urgency from their government um, and from Democrats. What you see and what you hear constantly on Columbus Avenue or uh, in Stytown or anywhere that I'm at is that it feels like Republicans really fight for their priorities and fight for their people, even if their intentions are evil, frankly, Um, whereas our Democrats seem to be uh, content with the status quo. And that's the pitch they're making, Ben. They're saying, hey, elect me because you you know, you should be happy with the state of the country today and and giving me a 31st year in Congress is going to continue it. I mean, Carolyn Maloney specifically said that two days ago on an interview. She said, um, you know, things are great. I, let's have that debate then. Let's let two people try to take credit for the current state of the economy and the country and the party, and I'll offer change. And let's see how that plays out by August 23rd. In the recent crises that the country's faced, uh, whether it's threats to democracy, whether it's inflation, uh, you mentioned the baby formula shortage, uh, a number of other issues. Uh, you talk about local issues that are also national issues, including, you know, like housing affordability. Um, over these over these last year or so, a uh, year and a half, when Democrats have had uh, these narrow majorities in the two houses of Congress and and the presidency, um, what what's something differently that you would have done than than your opponents here have done? If you were in Congress over the last year and a half and had the ability to uh, introduce new legislation or really try to you know, push a priority issue. Just give us one or two examples of something you would have done differently or or that are part of your your policy platform for the future here. You have a, a lengthy policy platform that I've been reviewing. Um, but but what are a couple of things that, you know, are not the sort of mainstream uh, issues that lots and lots of Democrats agree on, especially in New York City, but that are sort of signature Patel p- proposals that you would be working on? Well, I think two of our main policies are the Abundance Society, the Dynamic Society, which we just dropped today, both of which are talking about long-term new economic argument to build up um, the manufacturing and middle-class capacity of this economy um, in ways that that take the dynamism and ingenuity of our district and, frankly, of the nation and channel it towards um, research, development, technologies, and innovation. And so um, 
I would have taken one thing very differently, right? So I would have, first off, I was the first and only candidate Democrat still with a comprehensive plan on inflation. I would take inflation seriously because the alternative is Jerome Powell rate hiking us into oblivion, into a crash recession that is going to be born on the backs of middle and working class people most. So taking inflation seriously would have meant, you know, suspending archaic rules like the Jones Act and the uh, Dredge Act, both of which require, you know, American made vessels to unload cargo here in New York and in, across the country. There are literally barges out there with lumber and sheet metal and drywall sitting, waiting to be unloaded because of this archaic law. You know, I would suspend all non-Russia-related tariffs. That would re- reduce inflation by 1.6%. I just went to get a bacon, egg, and cheese, um, or sorry, just an egg and cheese here, and my deli had a $1 inflation surcharge on it. So I, on my walk back, was thinking, man, is this, am I just getting ripped off? But I looked it up. A uh, dozen um, eggs, uh, you know, uh, one year ago cost $1.38. Today they cost $2.80. I actually got a deal, frankly, um, from my deli. But what I'm trying to say is that there are literally things that are happening that are affecting everyone's lives that we need to be cognizant of and attuned to that are the basics, that are the layups. You know, Ben, you can't tell Americans, oh, let me, you know, get you Medicare for all and things like that when they know you are not passing that. And at the same time, they're saying, you're trying to, you can't even get baby formula on my shelves, you know? And so some of this is really interesting in that we're, we're talking about this is the most practical, pragmatic things that New Yorkers and, and people face um, to make their lives better. And and there's a separate, one or two other things that I'm just like very weird uh, uh, things that have happened in this Congress alone. President Biden asked for an act called the Competes Act, which invests in manufacturing, semiconductors, commodities in America to counter a rising China. That bill passed the U.S. Senate in the first two months of this session um, with bipartisan support, I think 67 votes. It languished at the U.S. House of Representatives. Uh, Both committee chairs inexplicably have held it up. And that should have been on the president's desk in the first 100 days. So we can't even just keep blaming the Senate. I mean, these are technologies that would, you know, help us against our fight against climate change and and, um, uh, and raw materials and things like that. And so I I just don't understand where their priorities are at this point. You are uh, self-described pro-growth. What does that mean in this congressional district? I I described some of the contours of, of this new district. Um, that is where the voting is happening this year and then will become the, the district uh, come January. What does it mean to be pro-growth in, in this congressional district? I understand you can obviously in Congress have, have broader pro-growth policies You know that deal on the, on the national stage, but in terms of in the district, what does it mean to be pro-growth? Well, I just want to say that you know for the first time in 20 years, uh, in two decades, um, according to Gallup, uh, more, Repu- more people trust Republicans on the economy than Democrats. Um, and that is um, an anathema to me, you know, which is why I keep saying that, you know, if we're going to win this country back, we need to make a new economic argument. And that economic argument needs to not denounce growth. It needs to say that we're going to build in abundance um, so we don't have as much scarcity and prices rising, but also, uh, you know, raising all boats. So let's talk about this district particularly. Um, ben, you know, I live down the street from NYU Langone. 
we've got Presbyterian, we've got Mount Sinai, um, we've got, uh, you know, the, the Cornell Weill. We have the top medical research institutions in the world lining First Avenue um, in this district. And some of the most cutting edge research in brain science, in um, genomics and things like that are happening at those places. So when I say a pro-growth policy that would affect my district, one is that, you know, people have been, the, there's an initiative called the Brain Initiative, which is to map the human brain in the same way that we did the human genome. Now, and if anyone that's listening has ever seen a grandparent, um, you know, lost a grandparent or anyone to Alzheimer's or dementia, I mean, these are things within our grasp to cure once we have the same, you know, mapping as a human genome project. Now, Congress appropriated $620 million to that. If we double it, like Operation Warp Speed, we would double the speed at which this happens. And that stuff would happen right here in my district. It would create well, uh, you know, well-paying jobs. It would create supporting jobs. All those things are, in my opinion, pro-growth economics. When you look at the, the city itself, in 1987, after the, the crash, after the 2001 9-11 uh, you know, recession, after the 2009 recession, every time we've said, man, we really need to diversify the city's economy away from simply finance so we can weather the storm. And none of those times we've taken it. And many of those times, Carolyn Maloney and Jerry Nadler have been in power and stood in the way of progress. Now, you may say, or your listeners may say, well, this is not federal stuff, uh, but it is. It is. It's channeling the money to, uh, channeling money from federal dollars to things that create investment and also taking care of our federal dollars. I mean, both of them are competing for more credit over building the Second Avenue subway. First off, the people who built the Second Avenue subway are like my father. He was an MTA engineer um, from 19, you know, uh, up until 1989. And it's people that no longer can afford to live in this district who built that subway. No one wants to hear politicians talk about who built the subway when none of them have picked up a hammer um and it really kind of you know it just it gets me but that subway line costs six and a half to eight times depending on what estimate you look at the next closest cost in the world now if we want to build infrastructure in this city we have to get costs under control we have to get red tape out under control we have to get this vitocracy that the city and the country have turned into under control um both of my opponents also have vehemently opposed the Soho NoHo rezoning. Now, um, to put it in perspective, that rezoning would upzone Soho and NoHo uh, and include um, uh, a massive amount of affordable housing. And the reason is because of this, in a wealthy area where rents are high at the market rate, you need significantly less market rate apartments to subsidize a larger number of affordable housing units. If you're only building affordable housing at the ends of our subways and in the you know black and brown neighborhoods that bear the brunt of gentrification, you're not really being progressive, are you? And both of my opponents have not found an upzoning or a or a, um, a density or a multi-layer zoning that they could say yes to in their careers. And their decades of no can be directly tied to this livability crisis. So locally, you know, there's things we can do to make mm-hmm. it easier for someone to raise a middle-class family in this district. And it simply uh, hasn't been done because that's not their constituency. The... Uh... I, I will say the uh, the affordable housing due to come in the in the that rezoning um, is maybe massive, as you say, relative to to the lack that uh, that has been built. But it's still uh, rel- relatively modest to what what the city needs. But um, but oh, totally. Point, point I mean, take, look, point, point yeah, I, you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I get it. And, yeah. and so we have. You have Midtown East, you have um, the the Penn Station redevelopment debacle. I mean, there are 
ample opportunities here to uh, rezone and, and just and, just quickly, what what do you mean by the the Penn Station redevelopment debacle? Because that's a plan that's that's going through. Actually, as we're speaking, there there might be a vote taking place in Albany around that plan. But but just very quickly, what's your why do you say that's a debacle? You're against the the plan that the governor and the Empire State Development have put forward. I think anyone who's been in the private sector who understands um, finance and, and building would tell you how uh, unbelievably dumb the city's plan is. And, and not because I opposed building um, State, state's plan, mm-hmm. the state's plan. Exactly. And, and and the reason is this, for example, well, all we're doing right now is selling off a chunk of land around Penn Station to the state to utilize eminent domain to allow Vornado to build a lot of tall office towers in exchange for a promise from the state to send us. Um, payments every year for, I think, what is it, 60 years. Now, you and I know that uh, the New York City and New York State relationship isn't always perfect. And if there's a Republican governor at some point in the 60 years, you know, we know that there's always a risk of uh, these payments being taken away in some form or another via other budget cuts or something else. What I'm saying is that the city just gave away guaranteed property tax revenue, its single source of income, uh, main sole source of uh, large income um, for the next 60 years uh, to let the governor take over uh, an area of the city. So here's how I would have done it. And this is not even a city uh, uh, congressional question, but it's relevant because both of my opponents, Carolyn Maloney and Jerry Nadler, vehemently opposed the redevelopment plan. Why? Because NIMBYism and because it gets some votes, but they didn't offer an alternative. And in my opinion, if you just say no, if you just veto and you offer no alternative, then it's tantamount to being complicit in whatever the end result is. You're not at the table. What I would have done is upzone the surrounding areas of Penn Station, taking the increased property value, borrowing against then future tax uh, uh, receipts that you'll receive from those benefits, combining that with federal, state, and local dollars on grants um, for infrastructure, including the bipartisan infrastructure bill, to actually redevelop Penn Station. Then, as that area becomes less blighted, uh, use those property tax revenues to pay against that bond issue. Now, that's how a normal project finance person would do this. In you know, and control and keep control. Mm-hmm. Interesting. All right. Uh, lots more to potentially discuss. It's a very there, weirdly I want to get to some other stuff. Thing we yeah, no, it's very, it's very complicated. Um, you know, there's lots of questions about whether the new office space will be needed and, and why there isn't more housing in the, in the project. Um, uh, and, and, you know, a lot, a lot of uh, question marks around the financing as, as you get at some of them. All right. So, um, you are obviously running, as you have mentioned a number of times, and I've mentioned against two sitting members of Congress. In brief, give us your case against uh, each of them as to why they 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 don't uh, you know deserve another term. You've already you've already gotten at some of this, uh, you know, saying that you know they, they have a lot of politics of no uh, and some other things. But in more specifics, um, you've run against uh, Representative Maloney twice before, as I mentioned earlier. So this one should be a lot easier easier for you. Um, but what's what's in brief, you know, in a minute, what's your main case against why uh, she doesn't deserve another term in Congress? 
I think Representative Maloney has been an ineffective congressperson from the standpoint of meaningful legislation uh, and protecting our rights. And um, at the same time, she has a voting record that is largely out of step with this district from voting for the Iraq War to the 94 crime bill, which increased uh, mandatory minimums and helped contribute to our mass incarceration and criminal justice, racial justice problem to, um, you know, voting uh, to create ICE and the Department of Homeland Security to a border fence and to, you you know, against the Iran deal, which is President Obama's signature peace and diplomacy effort that, frankly, Israel supported at the time. So I think her voting record is completely out of step with this district. And on top of everything, of course, um, you know, she was the leading anti-vaxxer in Congress for 15 years, guys. I mean, at the time when when we could have been having hearings to codify Roe or, or Griswold, she held a hearing comparing the vaccine industry to the tobacco industry. She introduced a dozen bills. She spoke at multiple anti-vax rallies, two of which which I have photos from, including one in 2005 and one in 2008 um, uh, with Jenny McCarthy and Jim Carrey. Elevating those fringe figures, you can draw a straight line from her advocacy against vaccines to the fact that a third of Americans no longer believe vaccines are safe and don't take the COVID vaccine and perpetuate this misery of COVID that we are in. So I find that disqualifying. I think that if you want to be a representative from a district like this, you should be pro-science and pro-democracy, full stop. And I think on both of those, she has failed. On Jerry Nadler, however, you know, his voting record is, is in my opinion, significantly better and more on step with the district. And I grant him that absolutely um, in terms of some of the issues I just named. But Jerry Nadler also voted for fast track deportations and several other problematic things. And honestly, both of them gerrymandered their districts this cycle and lost Democrat seats upstate for the next decade, putting me likely in the minority next year when I'm in Congress. And we have reporting from various sources, including the New York Times, that show that Maloney and Nadler, uh, you know, worked together to help her cut young and Latino voters out of her district and give himself, um, give give her some of his district to protect her reelection in exchange for a district that includes Lower Manhattan, so Jerry could name his successor. Now, if you're going to be on the side of democracy, then you should be an anti-gerrymandering, full stop, at the least when the voters of the state approved a constitutional amendment by an 80-20 margin. Um, and so these two just, have been- Just to be clear for folks, you, you're referring to the, the maps that were struck down. So this was this was sort that's of- That's right, that's right. The that was the of the of the maps that were struck yeah. down. And then the, and then what we have now is is the redrawn maps by the court-appointed special special master. Sure, you're, refer, you're referring to a prior attempt at, at some gerrymandering. The reason the maps were struck down is that that yeah. New York 10 well, snaking district was- became national a national joke and we got caught doing it and here we are in a three-way race so i think it's kind of a comeuppance they deserve each other in this race um but anyway go ahead go ahead sorry i I was gonna say but anyway uh, you know i look at this as a as a as a as a fundamental moment in America where we know that to get these rights back, it's going to take a new argument, new messengers who are attuned to it. Now, I want to draw your attention um, to uh, uh, to a couple folks. Um, you need only look across, you know, you need only look across the river to find that seniority and tenure isn't the only uh, measure by which someone can be an effective representative because Hakeem Jeffries is has shown in a small amount of time a remarkable prowess in the legislative process and effort and able to drive policy in America. So 
seniority isn't the end all be all for how you can become effective or powerful in Congress. On the other hand, the other thing I think a congressperson should do in the 21st century is to use his or her bully pulpit to drive the national conversation and narrative and to help win this country back. And we see across the river two uh, you know, young representatives in Ms. Ocasio-Cortez and Mr. Torres, both of whom have done more to highlight the issues of immigrants' rights, workers' rights, poverty um, in the current zeitgeist than Carolyn Maloney and Jerry Nadler have been able to or are able to do. And so when I say that liberal democracy is under attack and it's under attack from the forces of gerrymandering and voter suppression, well, my opponents participated in that. And when I say it's under attack from misinformation and cyber warfare and so social media platforms, well, I I believe I'm uniquely situated in this race to actually understand those mediums and to make an argument on those mediums um, and to help drive the national conversation towards bringing people back to our party and, uh, you know, um, uh, governing our city. You um, let's talk a little bit more about this new district. You when you challenged uh, Congressman Maloney in the past couple cycles, some of your best territory has now been drawn out of this district. Uh, As you got at that was that was sort of part of the apparent plan in in the previous maps. Um, Obviously, uh, both Congresspeople Maloney and Nadler did not want to be drawn into the same district as they are now. But in the in the prior version, there was this attempt to uh, seemingly help Congresswoman Maloney, given uh, how well you had done in in certain parts of the old district, um, the old district lines. Uh, So how do you win this race, given that a lot of where you were most successful, not not everywhere, there were portions of Manhattan where you did well, um, but but these portions of of Brooklyn and Queens that are no longer part of the 12th congressional district are not around. How do you uh, how do you see your path to victory here? Where in this district do you think you have the opportunity to win the most votes? Um, What's the geography look like? What's the sort of demographics look like for you? How How do you win this race against these two? Two sitting uh, Congress people. This is an incredible, Ben. Once in a generation, once in a century, opportunity um, where you have two incumbents who largely have the same base running against each other. Um, you know, both of them have tight, strong bases on the Upper East and Upper West Side, hugging Central Park. Uh, amongst older voters, voters over the age of sixty-five, they do exceedingly well. But fifty-seven percent of this district prefers somebody with fresh, new ideas and energy, and forty-three percent prefer somebody with seniority and experience. They are now fishing in that pond, and I'm alone in this one. Not only that, take it back to 2018, I lost Manhattan 70-30 to Carolyn Maloney. Uh, in 2020, I only lost it 39-49, to a significant gap breakage. And also, frankly, I know that we got, if you look at the map, a lot of the areas we did decently, we did well in, were cut out of the you know new iteration of the district, but I still got more votes in what's remaining of New York 12, and I live in it um, than in those other areas, something like 24,000 votes two years ago within the current boundaries of New York 12, uh, because just the density of the population is higher. So I think that there's a number of factors to show here. One is that while, you know, 44 to 45 percent of the, the electorate wants to reelect um, the incumbents, 32 to 35 percent of that group are the same people, if that makes any sense. If you look at the Venn diagram or visualize it, you see that um, you know they, they go after the same type of person who values the same type of cohort and thing. So for me, the path to victory 
is right down the middle. It is by talking to people about the issues that matter, um, talking to working class and middle class voters in this district who don't have a loyalty or allegiance to either of the incumbents, talking to folks who moved here 10, 15 years ago, uh, who see uh, just like, you know, uh, you know, who, who see that um, they have to start making these difficult decisions about whether they can live here uh, and raise a family or not. And, you know, I'm in that age cohort, frankly, and I'm engaged to be married at this point. Um, uh, as of a you know two three months ago, and you know it's the same conversations we have as a family as well, and so uh, I think that there's an enormous groundswell for change this cycle, and um, in this in the way that this is lined up, you know frankly Ben we don't have to win the east side or the west side. We just have to come in second in both, if you think about it, and mm-hmm. that is exactly what our numbers indicated we have to do. Interesting. Um, are there uh, you, you speak in um, in terms of generational change and you just got it a little bit when you spoke about the demographics of the district and and sort of the votes that you see as up for grabs. Um, why is the idea of generational change so important here? I, I think you spoke about it a little bit in, in a previous uh, answer about, uh, you know, online platforms and, and certain type of, you know, using of, of a bully pulpit and, and so forth. But are there other ways that, that you see generational change as important? And are you concerned at all that in some of this campaigning, you know, some of the rhetoric comes across as, as sort of ageist? Well, I mean, first off, absolutely not. I think <clears throat> the reason people are interested in generational change is because after Trump, we organized, we formed uh, organizations, we knocked doors, we made millions of phone calls. We got ourselves a Democratic majority in the House, Senate and the presidency, and we've seen nothing from it. And so we feel like we've reached the point where this is the the end line uh, for a gener- generation of policymakers who have failed to deliver in the modern world. Um, the other part of this is very simply that when you're in Washington for 60 years combined or 30 and 30 each, you don't understand that the Union Square subway platform is in unbelievably un- uh, over crowded. You don't understand that uh, when you go to Gristides and there's no baby formula, that there's a problem here. And so some of this is merely about um, being out of touch with the changing demographics dynamics of the city and being away from it um, for so long. Uh, The other thing I will say about this, I have never once and I'm very careful about it. And my grandmother would kill me if I did it. And I would never I have never once mentioned age in this race. The only people who have mentioned age are Carolyn Maloney and Jerry Nadler by saying things like, it's too, you know, this is too big of a time for an inexperienced person, training wheels, wet behind the ears, all these absurd sounding, um, you know, uh, tropes or aphorisms or whatever you want to call them. And uh, and the truth of the matter is that, Ben, the median, uh, you know, the average lifespan of a, an American adult male is 76 years old, which is actually appallingly low uh, compared to the rest of our peer countries. And I'm at the middle point of that. I'm at the middle point of, of, of the life of a, an American right now, the median age of it. The Constitution prescribes this uh, uh, office to be a minimum of 25 years of age to suggest that a 38 going to be 39 year old by the time I am in by the time inauguration rolls around 39 year old person with a family with a law degree that teaches at a university that's worked for the public sector and private sector that's fought foreclosures um, that to suggest somehow that that is uh, is 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 too young or inexperienced or whatever however she wants they want to say it to me that's ageist frankly. 
Um, you you said at the beginning of, of that uh, answer that you know uh, Democratic presidency and, and Democratic majorities in the House and Senate have have achieved nothing. Do you really do you really see it that starkly? Uh, you know, I mean, I don't see it that president- starkly. I mean, I, I think that look. We are likely going to see zero meaningful change on climate change. How many more decades do we have to wait while this planet is on fire for the prioritization and action on the climate? You know, we did come into office and pass a massive stimulus bill, one that was uh, needed, at least with the evidence at the time. Um, And we wasted or spent all our political capital on that one thing, Uh, you know, instead of something long term, like moonshots and innovation, like committing to, uh, you know, 2 percent of our GDP being uh, invested in research and development by bending the growth curve up, by tackling climate change, by tackling and continuing Operation Warp Speed to have mRNA vaccines for every all 26 class of viruses that affect America or that affect the world. There are opportunity costs out there for what they what what, you know, Jerry and Carolyn uh, and and people like that have accomplished and prioritized versus the things that we need to prioritize. The um, you, you call yourself an Obama Democrat, and looking back at at President Obama's two terms, there's there's been a lot of criticism from Democrats, and this is especially true on the on the sort of progressive wing, but a lot of criticism that he didn't act with the type of urgency that he should have, especially, you know, looking in hindsight. But but this was true at the time uh, for some, uh, you know, especially given that it then wound up, uh, you know, leading into the, the Trump years, which were very uh, challenging, obviously, for Democrats, um, that that President Obama did not make the most of those two terms, did not act with certain urgency, did not fully grasp the, the sort of forces working against him and, and the world, uh, including things like on climate that you mentioned and, and you know, really combating uh, Republican obstruction and some of these things. Looking back, do you do you agree with some of those assessments of the Obama years? I mean, it sounds a little uh, bit mean, like like some of the assessment you're making of these last you know year and a half or so. Well, Ben, I think that um, hindsight is always twenty twenty. But I will say this: let's not forget the reason we had sixty senators from states like Missouri, Montana, North Dakota, Alaska, um, Arkansas, places you wouldn't consider fathomable right now to elect a Democratic senator, is because we worked with the politics of persuasion. That we worked with people we disagreed with. We didn't find people irredeemable when uh, we disagreed with them on one thing, and that sort of absolutism. I think can lead to, uh, you know, continuing to be on the precipice of a, at best, 50-50 Senate and 50-50 country. Uh, We need to get back to building a big tent. And so I think the president did what he could, but you can't say, oh, Obama had 60 senators, he didn't do enough without crediting him for having 60 senators. That's first off. Secondly, the American Rescue Plan was probably the best and only climate change initiative that, you know, the the solar subsidies and things in that, the EV subsidies, the fact that there are now electric, uh, vehicle revolution coming all came from that. And last, let's not forget, we insured 30 million people during those years. I mean, I understand it's not Medicare for all, but it was a massive step forward. I wish there was a public option in that. I wish Joe Lieberman didn't exist as a person. Uh, not Sorry, I'm not trying to wish for him to be dead. I just meant that didn't I, exist at the I time. Understand. But, <laughs> but you know what I mean? And so, um, and so I think that 
you know, we can sit here and, and, and talk about this ad nauseum, but, you know, you, you, it's, it's both. And you did actually prioritize issues for the first time that had been overlooked for decades uh, in that administration. And more importantly, you did produce a lot of really meaningful, valuable, lasting change. People have been trying to rip out Obamacare root and stem for a decade, and they haven't been able to, and they can't now. And I think that's important to remember. Okay. Uh, a lot more I, I discussed with you there, but we're in our last few minutes here. I'm speaking with Serge Patel, who is a Democratic candidate in the 12th Congressional District of New York, competing uh, largely against uh, Representatives Jerry Nadler and Kara Maloney, who are both in this race after uh, a chaotic redistricting process that uh, went awry in, in a number of ways, especially for Democrats here in New York. Um, so we have this uh, new 12th Congressional District and uh, what is largely seen as a, as a three-way race here. Um, last couple of questions for you. Um, you, you, you know, you get it. Some of this, uh, the questions that voters may have about seniority, you spoke about that a little bit, uh, sort of counteracting that potential narrative and that narrative from your opponents about, uh, you know, this isn't, there, there's no, no good reason to sort of, uh, kick out a uh, longtime incumbents who have powerful, uh, chair, positions of committees and, and you know, or have, have a significant amount of sway based on their seniority and longevity, a uh, certain type of, of gravitas and, and so forth. Um, you've spent uh, a lot of your of your 30s here running for Congress. Uh, say a little bit about sort of how you have um, matured, if, if you see it that way, over these you know, three runs now, what you've learned, how you've, uh, you know, perhaps uh, adapted your thinking and, and, and sort of grown as you've, um, you know, continued in the professional world, but also now run uh, two plus uh, races for, for Congress here. I really appreciate that question and the framing of it, um, because, you know, um, in 2018, after so after the Trump election, you know, we really were reeling, and a lot of my you know cohort and I, like I told you, co-founded an organization that has trained thousands of Democratic campaign um, staffers and candidates to run for office, and and won dozens and dozens of races, including ones in 20. 20 um, by getting a, getting um, new leaders uh, into office. And there was a moment of incredible enthusiasm and excitement, and I'll admit naivety. Um, and, and that first race for me, you know, was so much energy and enthusiasm, so much grassroots support. But, you know, we just didn't know what we were doing as well as I do now. And losing is a remarkable teacher. Um, if there's a big, you know, if there's a fundamental thing that it did, I will say first off, um, it took me a long time to, to you know, to, to think through that as a person who, you know, generally hasn't really lost much uh, in life up until that point, the humility gained from, uh, uh, from, from something like that was, I think, you know, instrumental in, in making me sort of more deliberate uh, in my thinking. Um, I'll also say, you know, that as you do these races, you get, you get sharper and, and even get tighter and know your community more and more. The teacher that I have here is the fact that now I've talked to you know, literally thousands and thousands of people um, from one cycle to the next to the next. And what you do is really gain 
um, a perspective or an empathy from a lot of perspectives and not just your own as you do this kind of thing. So I'm determined. I'm persistent. I think that's the kind of representative um, New Yorkers deserve. And so, you know, me running a third time, I hope signals to people that, uh, you know, that, that I won't quit on them. When you when you say you gained humility and made you more deliberate, what's an example of, of how that has manifested itself? Is it a certain way that you're approaching listening? Is it certain people that you've sort of surrounded yourself with that are different? Uh, you know, any something else? I'm just throwing, you know, possibilities out there. But what's one way? Yeah, I mean, no, that's a, that's a very good question. I'll say this, um, you know, in that in the aftermath of Trump election and throughout that race uh, and those times, I think in the, um, you know, at the time we were running against institutional corruption, corporate PAC money, and we took on all these issues that um, you know, were in vogue at the time that perhaps weren't actually my core issues. As you can see, I consistently teach about and talk about um, the economy and nuts and bolts things and science. And that is not your typical sort of institutional progressive speak. And to try to get, and I didn't, it wasn't me that did this, our campaign that did this, but I think from the standpoint of outside uh, coverage and, and the type of vibe we gave off, you're running as this like, you know, you're trying to run as, uh, as this institutional sort of progressive thing. You're not. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. um, I think one of the things that's really fascinating about this district is the the current 12 that's been redistricted um, is that it, it, it gives me the freedom truly to um, talk about these long term uh, issues in a, homo- in a in a single message unified way that doesn't have to straddle uh, three boroughs and multiple constituencies and and is even. Does that make sense? I don't know how I'm articulating. Yeah, I think this. so. I think yeah. so. Uh, last question: um, In the final weeks of this race, uh, what what kind of things do you need to to go your way? How are you thinking about the politics of this? You obviously need to keep meeting. Uh, voters and and talking with people and getting your ads out there and literature out there, the, you know, those obvious building blocks of a campaign. But you've got uh, at least one debate, I believe, coming up on New York One. You've got um, obviously newspaper editorial boards that might weigh in. Uh, what, what, what are some of the pieces on the sort of political playing field that you're really banking on to to help you pull this off i i think you'd agree you know it's it's it still feels like a long shot but um but i know you you, you're thinking about it as a winnable race uh what what are some of the things that you are thinking about that need to go your way beyond those voter contacts first off i just got a tracking pullback and i can't publicize it just yet but i don't think this is anywhere near a long shot guys okay um but but no of course not because you know um because of the the dynamics of both the incumbents and but also the current narrative nationally and the zeitgeist is very much about you know whether we have effectiveness from our incumbents and despite their seniority perhaps this is one of those rare moments where we need to clean house i think 78 or 88 percent of the country believes this country is on the wrong track that means that for the first time even though in the president's party a majority of people believe the country's on the wrong track which almost never happens 
So that, all of that is trickling down to this district and in our in our evidence. Um, ben, you know, I've done this race before, but one of the things I always say said you know two years ago too, man, if we only had one or two extra weeks, like we were really on a stride. Our pull, our field team is incredible. The people and the volunteer swell is coming. Um, and the good news about having an election delayed from June 28th to August 23rd is that I was able to get those weeks that I wanted, you know. Um, so in the next three weeks, four weeks, I look at this like um, it's not like tennis or basketball where you're playing the opponent. It's like golf. You're playing the course. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to, you know, build up to, let's call it 35, 40,000 votes. Um, and it doesn't matter what Carolyn Maloney and Jerry Nadler do. So we are out there knocking doors, making millions, uh, hundreds of thousands of phone calls. I'm out there every day at the subway or some park or something. Um, but you're right. We've got four not one, four televised debates because of the attention on this race. The first one being next Tuesday, I encourage everyone to tune in. It's a 90-minute live primetime debate uh, on New York 1 on Tuesday at um, 7 p.m. And then we have three That's more August debates. August 2nd. That's mm-hmm. August 2nd. That's right. Mm-hmm. And then we have three more debates after that. I think that one of the great equalizers here, we, we know Carolyn Maloney gave herself $900,000 to buy this race um, a, a few months, a month ago, and is blanketing the airwaves. But one of the great equalizers, I think, in this one is that there is, for once in our, in my at least lifetime, a career doing this, um, an, an incredible amount of media attention um, on this race and an incredible amount of attention from the voters on this race. And my prediction here, Ben, is that everyone thinks that the August 20th third primary random day turnout uh, will be low. 79,000 people voted in the governor's primary um, in my district. My prediction to you is that this will exceed that. Mm-hmm. Interesting. That's what we're seeing. I mean, we can tell based on, you know, the numbers and IDs and people telling you they're going to vote. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. All right. Well, we're going to leave it there. Um, Suresh Patel is a Democratic candidate in the 12th Congressional District of New York. And thank you for the time. Be well on the campaign trail. And uh, we will, of course, be following this race closely. We'll be inviting uh, Congress people Nadler and Maloney to join us here on the show. So hopefully they'll uh, they'll agree to come on and make their cases. And uh, Suresh Patel, we thank you for the time. Thanks, Ben. Really appreciate it.